ground until we find eventually the true seed of, of Eve, Jesus, crushes the head of the serpent. In fact, the, the verb tenses here kind of show us that one of these is a mortal wound. When we talk about bruising, uh, that Satan will have his head actually crushed by the work of Jesus, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. See, this is what the uh, theologians for years have called the proto-evangelum. It's the first expression of the gospel, and it's uh, this first prediction of the coming of Christ. See, at its simplest explanation, this is the hope of mankind, isn't it? That even in the midst of these curses, there's this coming blessing that's coming. So God curses the snake. In verse 16, he starts in to bringing these curses to the woman as well. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children, and your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. First thing she says is, or he says, is that Eve is going to have multiplied pain and childbirth. Now, notice it's multiplied. It's not to say that it wasn't existent in the first place. It's multiplied. It's now increased. I know I want to speak to those ladies who are pregnant. We've got a number of you, right? Uh, lots of people have gotten through it, right? But at the same time, it is painful. And there's a curse that's brought here that, that's kind of frustrating God's purpose. Remember when, when God said to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, well, now he's bringing about this pain in childbirth to kind of uh, bring about something that he desires. But the second part is, is even uh, more interesting in verse 16. She's going to have conflict with her husband. Eve was given to Adam as a helper, as one who was to aid him. Now she is going to desire to rule over her husband. That phrase, your desire shall be contrary to him, is kind of hard to translate, but the same word is going to be used later next week in chapter 4, verse 7, where, where God speaks to Cain, and he says to Cain, hey, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to what? To master you. It desires to rule over you. That's the same word that's used of Eve, that she's going to desire to rule over her husband. And now what someone who is made as a helper, as one who is supposed to come alongside Adam, is now desiring to rule over Adam. And Adam's desire is to repress and, uh, and hold her down. And so there's tension in this fundamental relationship that God's given us, right? Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. They were called to cultivate and keep the garden, and God is frustrating these purposes. That's what we see in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, when God curses Adam as well. Look at verses 17 through 19. Adam, or to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Let's just stop right there. That's the indictment, right? You've listened to the, wife, uh, to the voice of your wife rather than obeying my commandment. You have not listened to my word that gives life. You have chosen to listen instead to the, the woman that I've placed here with you. And so there's an indictment that's stated to Adam that's not stated to either Satan or to Eve. This is brought to Adam's foot and said, you are guilty of this. And here's the consequence at the end of verse 17. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so uh, the outcome is that Adam will experience this cursed ground. 
Adam works the ground, and it's naturally going to bring forth what, what verses 18 and 19 call thorns and thistles, right? He's going to work, and he's going to toil at the, the ground to get it to produce the food that he and his wife and his children need. But what's going to happen instead is it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. You ever have experience with this? Spring's coming, right? You're going to go out, and you're going to try and clean up those beds, the, the, the garden or whatever else that you work in, and you're going to slave, and you're going to labor, and then two weeks later, there's going to be more weeds that pop up, Right? This is what happened, is that God has cursed the ground that it doesn't do what we want it to do any longer. But that's not just it. Adam also is going to return to the ground in his death. That Adam is going to become the dust that he once was. Now think about this. God created Adam with the, the, the dust of the earth and with his breath. And now that God has rejected, or Adam has rejected the word of God, he returns to just being dust. And so when he dies, he goes back to the dust that he came from. See, God here is, is one who brings these curses to our doorstep. He, he lays them at our feet. And we have to stop and say, why does God do this? God intentionally frustrates all of the purposes that he's given to Adam and Eve, right? We've, we've talked about this. God uh, gave Adam and Eve these purposes, be fruitful and multiply. And then he matched it with pain and childbearing. He said, uh, cultivate the earth, cultivate the garden and keep it. And Adam is frustrated in his work. And then he's limited in how many years that he has to work it. See, God gave Adam and Eve these specific tasks. And now God purposefully frustrates the cause of each of these tasks. So that Adam is frustrated in his work and Eve is pained in her labor and so that mankind is completely alienated in their sin. I remember when I was in uh, seventh grade literature class or something like that. Maybe you should forget these kind of things, right? But I have a, a chart. There was all of these things that you would describe a, a story through a, a kind of a, a narrative of man versus nature or man versus man or man versus uh, whatever, Right? And so what we see is all, throughout this curse that God is bringing, we see these different areas, these spheres in which Adam and Eve are frustrated. The first is that man is alienated from creation, right? He no longer has this unaltered dominion over creation. So when he works the soil, he's frustrated in it. Later on in the Old Testament, you'll see God uses attacks from wild animals for his purposes, that they no longer have this dominion. The lion can no longer lie next to the lamb. But not only that, man is alienated from each other. There's division between people. They have animosity toward one another. We'll see this most particularly in Genesis chapter 4, right? Cain's going to rise up and he's going to kill his brother Abel. But secondly, or thirdly, man is alienated from the spiritual realm. This, this ad, uh, advocate that they had at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, Satan, is no longer their friend. That's what Genesis 3.15 is telling us, right? That now there is this enmity between Satan and the woman's seed. That now there's this division. What used to be a partnership at the beginning of Genesis 3, God curses so that now we no longer can partner. That's a good thing. Fourth, we see that man's alienated from God himself, that uh, by the end of this chapter, chapter, God will evict mankind from the Garden of Eden, that they will be kind of pushed out of the garden for their own good. And we see all of these spheres so that man is no longer able to turn to creation. Man is no longer able to turn to one another. Man is no longer able to turn to Satan. Man is no longer at home with God. 
We stop and we just consider the weight of this and we say, what do we do? See, if man looks up to God, he's, he's broken. If he looks down to creation, that relationship's broken. If he looks across to other people or sideways to the spiritual realm, he is alone in all of these things. And surely you and I have all felt the weight of this, haven't we? You ever felt alone and isolated? Have you ever felt that? I have. I remember uh, when we first started this church, I was supposed to meet with someone, and this is the third time I was supposed to meet with this area individual, and this was the third time they stood me up. That happens. And I remember driving around going, what am I doing? What am I doing? Felt alone, isolated. We've all felt alone and isolated in this world. It's good for us to recognize here that that isolation, that this alienation, isolation is kind of given to us by God as God brings these curses to us. They're not something that we've created in the sense that we earned that separation, but it's wrought by God. When we look at this passage, we realize that the breakdown between man and nature, man and man, and man in the spiritual realm is is wrought by God himself. Our isolation is God-wrought. But in verses 20 through 21, we find God gives grace. God gives grace to us in verses 20 through 21 that God brings provision. Look at verse 20 with me. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It's kind of a funny little passage, isn't it? I mean, in the midst of all of these curses, uh, Moses kind of stops and highlights something that seems a little strange to us, right? All of a sudden, Adam is naming his wife for a second time. We remember at the end of chapter 2, God named, the wom- uh, named Eve woman because she was taken out of man. We talked about, uh, whoa, man, right? But he names her again because she's the mother of all the living. Adam names his wife. The name uh, has a meaning, right? Eve is kind of similar to this word for life. Um, There's possibility that in the Aramaic, the word Eve can sound like the word for serpent, which I think it would be a jerk thing to call your your wife serpent, right? That would be just kind of a, a bad thing to do for your marriage. But probably, Adam's kind of highlighting that this is the mother of all the living, that this is someone uh, from whom all living people will be born from. And so Adam is highlighting that he's saying, I'm not going to be the recipient of God's justice. I'm going to be a recipient of mercy. I'm expecting life to come from us. I'm expecting good things. What happens in verse 21 is that God covers Adam and Eve permanently. Remember, they had kind of sewn together these fig leaves to kind of make a covering for themselves when they realized they were naked. And God takes one of his creations, one of his animals, or multiples of his animals, and he slaughters it to bring this clothing to Adam and Eve. It's worth noting that throughout the law, whenever God would describe uh, those priests that were to serve in his presence, he, he would make sure that they were covered, that there was no nakedness in his presence because he recognized that there was no ability uh, for them to be naked in his presence. 
So God covers Adam and Eve permanently. He slaughters one of his own. And we see in this the beginning of what we would call atonement, right? The, the slaughtering of one animal so that our sin can be covered, right? It, it kind of lays the foundation and the groundwork for uh, what's going to happen later on. So God doesn't just meet us with justice. He meets us with mercy, doesn't he? God shows mercy to us in our sin. Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We quoted from Luke last week, the Son of Man didn't come to seek, or didn't come uh, for the healthy, but for for the sick. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, God moves toward Adam and Eve with grace and provision. And when Adam names Eve, he shows that he understands that God is bringing grace, that more life is coming, that this is not a final judgment. For us, it's a recognition this morning that no matter how badly we've sinned, God has grace for us. Do you believe that? I mean, do you truly believe that in your heart of hearts? That here, Adam and Eve expected judgment. That's why they hid from God at the beginning of chapter 3, right? They sin against God and they go and they hide from an all-knowing, sovereign God. They hide from Him as if they could escape the judgment that was coming. And yet, God doesn't meet them with immediate death. Instead, He meets them with grace and provision. Jerry Bridges says this, He says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. See, this morning, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've accomplished, no matter how heinous your sin is or how heinous you feel your sin might be, you are never beyond the grace of God. You're never beyond the reach of God's saving arm. I wonder if we might just camp here for a second and just ask the simple question, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God can bring grace and mercy to his people? Functionally speaking, do you look down upon other people because you feel that they're beyond God's grace, that they're beyond God's mercy? Do you, in your heart, silently judge others for not being as put together as you are? Or on the flip side of it, do you have a certain sin in your heart and in your mind that you feel like is beyond the grace of God, beyond the mercy of God? Because right here in Genesis 3, when it got so bad that Adam and Eve were tempted to hide from this all-knowing God, God meets them with grace. He brings provision in pelts and promises. To what God initiated... uh, when God initiated the suffering of the curses, extended here in verses 14 through 19, he also initiates the care of verses 15 and 21. Really, this seems to be God's way. He's filled with grace and truth, never, never erring too much to one side or the other, always bringing about grace and truth to those whom he loves. What we see in verses 22 through 24 kind of tie this all up. In verses uh, 22, look with me there. He says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed there cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what happens in, in verse 22 is that God deliberates amongst himself. Just as he did in chapter 1, verse 27, he said, let us make man in our image. Now he turns to himself and they deliberate. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now recognize this is not a good thing, that when Adam and Eve took of the, God, of the apple and they ate of the apple that they were forbidden to eat from, only bad things happened for them. Yes, their eyes were open, but they saw that they were naked, and they covered themselves with fig leaves, and there's this inherent brokenness that begins there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And then, what happens then is that now, God looks at himself, and he said, this man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and look what he says there in verse uh, 24, or verse 23, or excuse me, verse 22. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is kind of a a really interesting little statement here. You'll notice that it's not really a finished sentence as you read it in the English, right? Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Kind of sounds like a Seinfeld episode, right? He's not finishing his sentences. It's this... um, this kind of literary device known as apiosepesis, if I am pronouncing it right, and intentionally leaves a sentence unfinished for the reader to, well, you know, right? It's like when you, when you can't even, right? We, we, we use that all the time, that statement. My wife, she'll say, well, I can't even, you know, like as if even became the verb in the sentence, right? I'm unable to even. No, you, you, you use this all the time. You, you don't finish your sentences as a, a rhetorical device to get someone else to kind of understand your logic. And this is what's happening here, is that God is inviting us to consider the dilemma that he's faced with. And so now God shuts down the Garden of Eden. He sets a sentry, a, a cherubim, in front of the entryway with this flaming sword that guards and protects every entrance to it so that Adam and Eve are unable to work within themselves to re-enter and grab from the tree of life. They're cut off. They've been evicted from the presence of God. And so as we kind of take a summary of this, we see that God, uh, Adam and Eve have sinned against God, and so God brings curses against the snake. He says that you're going to eat of this dust, that you uh, eventually are going to die at the hands of the seed of this woman. To the woman, he says, you're going to have pain and childbearing. You're going to have division with your husband. And to the, uh, the man, Adam, he says that you're going to work the ground with toil, and eventually you're going to go back to it in dust. All of these things are wrought because of human sinfulness. To make things worse, what we see is we see man coming out of the garden, fleeing the presence of God, at division with Satan himself, at division with one another, and kind of cut off from the ground that sustains them. Here we are, this picture of what we are. We're fleeing the presence of God, divided from everything else. So we have to stop and we have to push back and say, what's God doing here? If God's reorienting us to his grace and his mercy, how do we see that here? What good is coming from this situation? What is God bringing about? Because all I see right now is suffering and difficulty. 
Ever get in that place in life and you say, I don't see any silver lining in this. I don't see any positive thing coming out of this. Even after the promises of verse 15 and the provision of verse 22, Adam still finds himself with his nose pressed to the glass of Eden, remembering what was and, and without much to look forward to. See, this morning what we see is that God initiates the suffering in the life of man so that he can also bring mercy to the life of man. God has to lead us through this path of suffering and difficulty so that he might show us the way of salvation. That sounds pretty foreign to our ears, doesn't it? But hang with me for a second. We've seen some pretty strong curses that are brought to Adam and Eve here. These curses undoubtedly come from God, don't they? Like, God is speaking. There's no question about these things are coming from God to Satan, to the woman, to man. There's no question about this. Lamentations chapter 3, the prophet writes this. He says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Isn't it from God that bad things come? Shouldn't we expect that at times? Shouldn't we see that that God also brings bad things into our life? If you remember the the story of Job, in Job chapter 1, verse 21, uh, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, And the author kind of ascribes to this, he says, in all of this, Job did not sin. He's right. See, we are left in this world where we have difficulty. And we're tempted to say that those difficulties, those hard things, those hardships, they come from somewhere else. We don't really know where they come from, but they can't come from God because God is all roses and kindness, right? And we might just need a a tune-up on our theology, We might need to inspect the basis of how we approach suffering and hardship and say, maybe there's something bigger and better that we need to understand about our God and how he brings about these situations. So it's a good question to ask, right? Why? Why does God initiate such suffering in the lives of them, those whom he obviously loves? Why do bad things happen to good people? as the rabbi once said in the 80s, right? See, particularly what we see this morning, if we were to kind of pick up this thread and take it and pull it throughout the rest of the Bible, we would see that that God-wrought suffering points us to Jesus' God-wrought suffering at the cross. That if we were to kind of pick up this thread and pull on it, eventually it would lead us right to Calvary. And we saw this last week. We saw that that Jesus himself had taken on our fear and our guilt and our shame at the cross. But now we see that God takes on all of these aspects of our suffering. We we cited those four different spheres of how we kind of experience this brokenness in our world, right? We saw that, first of all, we're broken with creation. Well, Jesus himself experienced this disconnect with creation at the cross. Do you remember when, when Jesus is on the cross... The description that Matthew gives in Matthew chapter 27 is he says that at noon, in the middle of the day, it's completely dark outside. That after he lays down his head in death, that there's earthquakes, 
that there is some kind of cosmic connection between the death of Jesus and the physicality of the universe. It's not just that. It's just that Jesus is also alienated from his brothers. Remember, at the beginning of, chapter, of John, in, in chapter 1, uh, the author says, he says, he came to his own, to his own people, to his flesh and his blood, his heritage. He was born a Jew. And yet, when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. That he experienced this relational division between man and man. So he it takes on the division between man and creation. He takes on the division between man and man. What about this division between he and Satan? Wasn't Judas possessed in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 3? Satan enters into this person of Judas who then betrays Jesus. So there's division between he and Satan. And finally, there's this division between he and God that Jesus cries out in Matthew 27, 46. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? So all of this division leads us directly to the cross so that suffering is part of the way that we come to God. Because Christ has suffered, you and I can suffer well. Philippians 3, Paul's writing this uh, reflection on his former life. And he's saying, I was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was uh, righteous in all these ways. And then in verse 10, he says this. He says he wants to know Christ in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying, there's no way for me to know resurrection outside of also knowing suffering. That I can't disconnect and I can't just run straight to this goodness with God, this restoration and renewal with God. It has to come through the path of my own suffering. Jesus said it himself in Luke 9. We quote this often. If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He looks back at a rich young ruler who who claims to have fulfilled the whole law and he says, unless you go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, you cannot come and follow me. The recognition is that we cannot follow after Christ unless we've denied ourselves, unless we've embraced suffering. George MacDonald writes this. He says, The Son of God suffered unto death. Not that men might not suffer, but that their sufferings might be like His. The Son of God suffered so that we could suffer like Christ. You ever think about this? Outside of Jesus Christ, our suffering is meaningless. You, you go and, and you have no faith in Christ and you get a diagnosis of cancer. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. It's just a frustrating kind of bump in the road, so to speak. But if we're in Christ, it has meaning. It's part of that path that God has given us that we embrace suffering so that we recognize our need for a Savior and we turn to Christ in faith. See, all, salvation always moves us from the cross to the crown. Salvation always moves us through suffering and into deliverance. 
I can see our, our PowerPoint's not working. I have a quote here for you. It's from a, a man named Rankin Wilborn. And he says this. He says, we forget, don't we, how much we need this grace of God. Prosperity and comfort, the very gifts that God gives us and his gracious blessing, can cause us to forget the Lord. Therefore, God uses suffering not to punish us, but to cause us to remember the miracle of his grace and his abundant provision. God uses suffering to bring us back to himself, back to his own heart. See, in Christ, we've said this, our our suffering has purpose. God initiates difficulty in our life uh, to make us aware of our need. And then our need drives us to the cross. It makes us aware of of how shorthanded we are, of how incapable we are of actually dealing with our own difficulty. As I'm preparing this this week, um, someone had posted a video uh, from Bishop T.D. Jakes, and he keeps saying this phrase. He says, you cannot curse what God has blessed. He's saying this over and over and over again, saying you cannot curse what God has blessed. You cannot curse what God has blessed. Simple enough statement, right? How are we to understand it? I mean, my mind initially went to the Apostle Paul. Do you think he might have objection with that statement when he was beheaded outside the city of Jerusalem? What about Peter himself as he was crucified on an upside-down cross? Do you think he might take issue with what God has blessed no man can curse? Do you think all the blood of the martyrs that's spilled, that's poured out, do you think they might take issue with that statement? See, we're so quick to claim God's blessing for us, and sure enough, there will be blessing for us in Christ. But let me just tell you that the fullness of that blessing might not be found on this side of eternity. That we still sit underneath these curses that God initiated in Genesis 3, don't we? This spring, we will go out into our garden, and we will toil. Tomorrow morning, you will go up, get up, and go to work, and you will struggle. Those ladies who are pregnant, you will have pain in childbirth. Just because you're in Christ, those things are not eradicated. Paul says it in Romans chapter 8. He says that, that God has initiated this pain, that he subjected the creation to futility in hope of, of the sons of God being revealed. That still to this day, we still experience these curses that God has placed on our world. That we haven't avoided those because we believe in Jesus. That someday they will be stripped from us though. And if we jump at the chance too early to to claim God's blessing and don't recognize the frustration and the curse that we sit under, we're going to find ourselves very confused. See, just as Bishop Jake said, you cannot curse what God has blessed, neither can you bless what God has cursed. I can't just come out and say over my, my hedges, you will not overgrow yourselves, right? I can't just claim that. I can't go out to my beds this afternoon and say, this spring you will no, no longer grow weeds. I claim this in the name of Jesus. Of course not. As long as this world still waits to see the sons of God revealed, it's subjected to futility. That we go to work and we toil and we do these things. We pick up after our children a thousand times a day because it's part of the futility of what we do. It's subjected by God to bring us to him. And so 
this curse that Adam and Eve are given, are meant to turn our eyes toward the goodness and mercy of God. You see that this morning? So what's that mean for us? I think sometimes I find myself so willing to be done with suffering and difficulty. I I don't bear up under challenges. I don't have the strength uh, to sustain those things. I want to flee from those difficulties. And it's just a, a call this morning for us to not... Be so fast to do away with difficulty, with with hardship. Because it's by suffering and by difficulty that God teaches us a reliance, a strength, a steadfastness. James chapter 1, that we should consider it joy when we face trials of many kind. Because trials produce perseverance. We, We are cultivating character that God is bringing about in us as we face hardship and difficult circumstances. And we can look on our suffering, we can look on our hardships with, with a different set of eyes because Jesus Christ has been raised to new life. Isn't that true this morning? That we don't have to take every wind of hardship and wind of difficulty uh, to the nth degree because someday God will eradicate all of that suffering. Someday God will take all of that hardship away and he will bring us into his presence forever. But the path that God has chosen for us is to submit us to hardship, to difficulty, to trials, to disease, to sickness, to broken relationships with those that you love. He has chosen to, to give you those difficult relationships at work with that coworker that you tried to share Christ with and now they look at you differently with that promotion that you didn't receive. He's chosen by his sovereign hand to bring about some difficulty between you and your children at times as you try to discipline them into understanding. He's chosen to give you this futility in your work when you feel like your work is pointless and hopeless. He's chosen to do that so that we recognize our need and we flee to him and say, God, I was created for you. I wasn't created for my children. I wasn't created for my workplace. I wasn't created for anything else but to live for your purpose. And I need the grace and mercy of the cross. Let's be people that recognize that. I was reading this book, um, it's called uh, The Gospel, I think it's uh, by Ray Ortland, and he's laying out what the gospel should mean for churches, and he lays out this equation. He says, you know, a gospel culture comes about when you have an expression of the gospel of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus plus safety plus time. That's how you create a gospel culture. Time, I understand, Right? We just need time. We need more exposure to the gospel. Uh, The expression of the gospel, I understand, right? But what does he mean by safety? When we understand that we can come into the midst of this body, and we can recognize the difficulties that we face, even in light of Genesis 3, we should be able to come to a place where we can recognize our own weakness and be reminded of God's goodness in Christ. Imagine you're, you're facing something difficult. Let's say it's a work relationship that's not going well. 
and you come to your small group on a Thursday night and you say, I'm, I'm facing this, this relationship and it's not going well and I, I've tried to, to make amends. I've done everything I can to live at peace with all men and yet I find myself divided. I find this distrusting relationship and I, I, I'm so frustrated by it and I can't really get beyond it and, and I, I almost can't even get to my work. I'm so just torn up about this. And what happens then, just imagine as, as your small group looks back at you and starts to speak the message of the cross back into your life. Say, so wait a minute, this relationship won't define you forever. Someday, because of the resurrection of Christ, you also will be resurrected to new life. You also will be brought into God's presence. But even now, God is raising you up. He's changing you and forming your character. He is allowing you to take on patience as you face this suffering. Or imagine you you come to your small group and you're facing a diagnosis of some kind that you're scared about, that you're afraid of, and you come to your small group and you say, I'm I'm, I'm freaking out about this situation. My doctor's saying this, and this is what I'm hearing. And all of a sudden, your small group says, wait a minute, there's nothing to freak out about. God has made absolute provision for you for all eternity. And that even if the worst possible scenario happens, you will be in God's presence forever. The gospel changes our view on suffering. And sometimes we have to be those people who speak, willingly speak the gospel into the suffering of others. Not with a quick fix. Not with a a shorthanded kind of uh, understanding. But with empathy, just reminding someone else of the goodness of God in Christ. Let's be those kind of people. Let's be those who dwell deeply in the cross so that we can remind others of the hope we have in Christ. I want to pray this morning that God makes us those kind of people, allows us to be those who trust deeply in Christ so that we can push beyond our suffering and bring honor to Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would allow us to to trust and delight, delight in you. Even as you have initiated difficulty, as you've handed us pain and toil and division, Lord, allow us to trust you in the midst of those things. Allow us to trust you in the midst of our work, to trust you in the midst of our marriages, to flee to you and your goodness. Lord, allow us to be people who bring encouragement to those who are faint-hearted. Lord, we want to admonish the idol, but we want to encourage the faint-hearted. We want to help the weak, and we want to be patient with all people. So God, allow us, by your mercy and grace, to be those who apply the salve of the gospel to others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.